just because someone wants to lose weight doesn't mean that they have to be someone who hates their body, right? Can't people love themselves and also want to be the best, healthiest version of themselves at the same time. And that seed got planted for me. I think this is absolutely possible. And in fact, as I've grown into that concept, I found that not only is it possible, but it's it's necessary. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets and without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, my guest is Eliza Kingford. Starting in her teens, Eliza struggled to find peace in her body, her body shape and size. Culture pressures and expectations of the way she should look impacted her feelings of self-worth. Eliza went on to heal herself and eventually became a psychotherapist and trained clinical psychologist. She founded Empowered Wellness, a health and wellness institution that helped young teens and adults accept themselves from the inside out, dealing with their obesity, their weight challenges, challenges around their body. She then authored a book called Brain Powered Weight Loss, which is basically 11 steps to help you end overeating and drop unwanted pounds. I was really interested in this conversation and the work Eliza was doing because childhood obesity is something that's really near and dear to my heart. Growing up, being the overweight kid, you struggle a lot, right? That shit really affects your life. Now today, it's even more of a problem. One out of every three kids is obese or overweight, and it's getting worse and worse. In our conversation today, we discuss some of the things you can do to help kids that are struggling with their weight, the conversations you can have that are healthy, how to create healthy dialogue, how to help kids make small, simple behavior changes to become aware of their thoughts, of their triggers. Another really important thing we talk about is your belief system. This this goes for adults and children, but if you have a belief system that you're somebody who struggles with your weight. You know, Eliza talks about how it's almost impossible or maybe impossible to actually lose weight and keep it off. So no diet will ever work until you fundamentally change your belief system. If you don't change your belief system, it's like building a house on a crooked ground. It just won't stick. It won't last a long time. Before we jump into this conversation, I want to share an announcement. The Feeling Full podcast is growing and I'm looking for someone to join the team, someone in the executive admin role. If you care deeply about wellness, weight loss, and care about being your best self and want to work in a high-paced, growing company, you may be just the perfect person. Ideally, you're organized, you're obsessed with details, you enjoy managing lots of moving parts, and want to be part of something that can potentially help a lot of people. If this sounds like you and you want to work at home virtually, um, along with me and the other team members, send me an email to m at feelingfull.com and let's talk. And lastly, if you know somebody who would be inspired by this conversation, please share this episode with them. Thanks for joining and let's jump right in. Eliza, I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Me too. I'm excited to be here. It's really great after you know reading your book and just getting a better understanding of what you're all about. It's kind of crazy to me that so much of what you talk about in your book is like the science background and the scientific approach to so many of the things that I felt like I discovered on my own mm. and the things that have helped me you know, lose my weight and keep it off. So I was really excited to see that kind of validation of sorts. Oh, yeah. That's so neat. I've had that feeling before. That's a that's a great affirming feeling. Yeah. It feels really good. And also the structure that you put to it was very, very reassuring. It's like you kind of outlined, you know, weight loss in a very pragmatic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's really valuable for a lot of people. I would like to start from the beginning where you have this big mission statement. 
you have this mission that you know you want to help as many people heal from unhealthy relationships with their bodies so they can actually go out in the world and be the person they're meant to be. Yeah. And I think that's so powerful because from my perspective, when I was at my heaviest, I felt like a, kind of like a prisoner, a prisoner mm-hmm. of my own body. That's right. So your mission really speaks to me. And I'm curious, why is this mission so important to you? Yeah. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm really glad it speaks to you. I mean, I think you of all people can understand that well, you said it perfectly, being trapped in your body, our our weight is often a representation of what's happening in our internal landscape. And so when people are really struggling with their weight and, and body image issues, what that says to me is they're not living their happiest and healthiest, biggest life that they were meant to live. And so the mission really comes less about any numbers on the scale or pounds lost. It, that stuff just doesn't even matter to me, except for the extent that those pounds keep people feeling trapped and like they're not living their best life. This came about for me years ago in the beginning. I think I was fresh out of grad school. Uh, you know, this was almost two decades ago, fresh out of grad school. And I was, I was with um, my first company, Wellspring, that I talk about in my book. And I was in between phases with them. I had just been a behavioral coach with them. It was my first bright-eyed, bushy-tailed summer, fresh out of grad school, you know, working with working with clients. And, and I loved the population. Um, you know, this was teens and young adults and they were struggling with, with body image. And in the season where we weren't running because we were a summer camp. So in the off season, I was doing a post-master's internship, clinical internship at the University of Colorado with eating disorders. And at that time I had I had met up with some professionals who just had a different view on uh, what treating people with body image issues and and eating issues looked like. And and really they were more along the lines of kind of the health at every size movement. At that time, it was becoming pretty popular. And long story short, what I was told at that time was that it was not possible to help people focus on becoming happier in their bodies, losing weight, essentially. It was not possible to help people lose weight and also believe in body positive or health at every size concepts at the same time. And I remember being, you know, again, young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed going, well, wait a second, can't people sort of love themselves on the way to creating better habits and healthy relationship with food, isn't it? Don't those two things go hand in hand that when you're feeling better about your body, you're taking better care of your body. And then maybe the the weight is somehow connected to that. And I didn't really know how all of that fit together at the time, but I felt very passionate that just because here's, here's where I was getting to just because someone wants to lose weight doesn't mean that they have to be someone who hates their body, right? Can't people love themselves and also want to be the best, healthiest version of themselves at the same time. And that seed got planted for me as it would happen just because somebody told me it wasn't possible. It made it even that much more interesting to me. And I said, well, wait a minute, I think this is absolutely possible. And in fact, as I've grown into that concept, I found that not only is it possible, but it's it's necessary, this concept of becoming a different person and creating gratitude, appreciation, love, connection, whatever you want to call it in your body while you are also losing the weight or truthfully engaging in the habits and the patterns that make the weight fall off. You know, not only has it become possible, it's become absolutely necessary. And so that's where my passion really lies in detaching this number on the scale or what that means or the culture of what it means to be body positive and, and health at every size and also weight loss, how all those things fit together. Truthfully, 
all with the same mission, which is people living their happiest and healthiest version of themselves, living into their best life. And so, yes, it is a big mission that I'm that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I, there's so many things I want I want to get into uh, based <laughs> on what you said, but I'm just gonna I just want to delve a little bit back into where this all comes from. I'm curious, you know, a lot of the things I've recently been talking about on the podcast is body image. Mm-hmm. You know, my personal journey to, with my body, body acceptance, and at the same time wanting to improve exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And this is an area I feel really conflicted about as well, because I understand people who just want to, you know, say, hey, I want to accept the way I am today. And I don't want to have to always feel like I'm trying to be somebody else to be happy. And I completely understand that actually resonate with what you're saying as well. And I'm curious, before we get into that, did you have any experience around your body image growing up that informed this way of thinking and interest? Yes, absolutely. I had my own body story. I grew up from a very young age learning and hearing about what a good body is, what a quote bad body is, what bodies are acceptable, what I should look like. And even though on the outside looking in, you may not have have thought that I quote should or shouldn't have a certain relationship with my body. In other words, I was at a normal weight, height, size quote, shape, what is normal. But even though on the outside looking in, you never would have guessed that something was wrong. I was terribly uncomfortable in my skin. I was terribly uncomfortable looking in the mirror. I had a constant running tape of negative thoughts, negative beliefs about my body all the time. And I got to a point of critical mass and and really that's where all of the the changes started happening in, in my own work, working with people where I decided enough was enough. And no matter where I was going to go with my shape or size, speaking to myself that way, believing those things about myself, having that relationship with my body was not helping me. So no matter what I was going to do, whether I was going to lose weight or not lose weight or change my shape or not change my shape, I was going to refuse to engage with that way of being anymore. So it, it didn't even matter what I was doing or not doing. It was, I got to a place where I refused to be that person anymore and started the work of dismantling that step-by-step along with, you know, mentors and reading and all kinds of new theories and developments. I did my own work and completely changed my relationship to my own body. And that certainly helped pave the way for knowing what was possible for others out there as well. Yeah, that's that's amazing that how you this all came from a personal journey. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. The, the work at Wellsprings is really interesting to me because I used to be a fat kid. Mm. It's interesting because you know not, it's not interesting. It's kind of sad. But to say 25 years ago when I was you know 10 years old, overweight, I was mm. maybe the only one in my class of 20 or 25 kids that yeah. were overweight. Now it's like I yeah. think I read somewhere one out of every three or one out of every two yeah. kids overweight or obese. I'm curious, you know, Wellsprings was, uh, it's Wellspring or Wellsprings? It was Wellspring. Mm-hmm. Okay, Wellspring. So yep. Wellspring was a camp and I know it's not a fat camp. How do you describe it? The clinical term <laughs> or the or the appropriate term? Sure. I mean, you know, we were, we were working with kids who were struggling with food and body, you know, Food and okay. Yeah. I guess the reason why I call it a fat camp is because I think as a kid, if I was 10 years old going to a summer camp with a bunch of bigger kids, yes, I would think of it as a fat camp. Like if my 10 year old would be like, oh, I'm going to fat camp, right? Sure. Yeah. There was a lot of lingo like that going on with, with the kids that we saw. We saw over 10,000 kids in the time that Wellspring was was in operation. And there was a lot of lingo like that going on. It became, as it is for kids, it becomes a way of self-protection, right? So if I can joke about it, if I can make fun of it, then it doesn't feel as vulnerable. 
first of all, I completely agree. Like, if I, I mean, I'm joking about it now. Actually, it feels like that 10 year old is actually making yeah. a joke about, you know, yeah. it's that 10 year old in me that's actually saying that. But, you know, a lot of what you talk about is like the identity of people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if I believe I'm a dieter, right. then I'm always going to be a dieter, right? Correct. If I yes. believe, so I'm curious, you know, and I, I completely believe that we have to change our mind before mm-hmm. we change our bodies, right? We have to change yes. what we believe about ourselves in order to change any fundamental belief about or on any fundamental reality in our lives. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious with with Wellspring how that actually works because by default, it's kind of from an identification standpoint, a kid's going to a camp where they're going to be working on their body and self-image or weight. Sure. Well, in full disclosure, if I'm being, you know, just completely honest, at the time that Wellspring was running, this was not my philosophy. And in fact, going through that experience and working with Wellspring for as long as I did was a piece of what led me to this philosophy that I now implement. And I would say Wellspring hands down was the best clinical immersion summer program for kids who are struggling with this. Without a doubt, we provided the best clinical care. There was a lot of empirical evidence. It was very well developed and and it was very well run. However, what I saw year after year, time over time, is that because we never changed, we never worked on change at an identity level, the kids would just go home with the identity of a dieter, or as you're saying, a fat kid, right? And end up being that person in the home. And now when you're in a really structured environment, when they would come to us, you're in a really structured environment and we were able to control for all the variables. And of course they were very, very, very successful. And we tried many, many things over the course of Wellspring, as far as aftercare is concerned to create that clinical change when they went home. And I didn't know until after I had worked with the company for so long and then created my own program and then, you know, gone through my own evolution as a practitioner, it was only then did I realize what the missing link was. And, and while the clinical intervention was fantastic, that missing link was really the focus on the identity first and foremost to create the foundation of a new identity. And then from there, you work on the implementation of the skills and the behaviors and the belief systems and all of that stuff. But we were doing, and this is what I teach now every day, is we we're doing it backwards. We're doing it backwards. We work from this place of pain. I don't want to be this way. I want to lose this weight. I'm a fat kid. I'm a dieter, right? And from that identity of a person who needs to lose weight, we try to make all the changes. And all that does is reinforce our identity of a person who needs to lose weight. And we try and make all of these changes from a belief system that truly a belief system is your operating system. It's the it's the software program that you're running every day. And until you upgrade that software program, you can't outperform it. I think you probably heard me say that before. You can't outperform it. We can't trick it. We can't you know, white knuckle it. We can't buckle down enough to outperform a faulty operating system. And so that was the light bulb moment that after almost two decades in, you know, research and sitting on scientific advisory boards and having access to the most amazing minds in this field, this light bulb moment came on for me that said, wait a second, unless we upgrade the operating system first, none of this stuff sticks because our operating system can only run our belief system and identity. It can't run anything other than that. So until we change from the inside first, nothing we do on the sort of pragmatic or practical level can go through. It cannot penetrate that operating system. And so 
that's a long, long-winded way of saying it was only after running those camps for so long and being immersed in that program for so long that I realized that that was, that was the missing link and it changed everything for my work and, and my life and the people I work with now. So that, when you say that was a missing link, was that a missing link at Wellspring, like for kids, you think? Yes. Yeah, it was. And I don't think we knew it at the time, right. you right, know, right. but yes, I do. I think, I think that was the missing link. So, and that's really interesting because I think as an adult, right, it's, it, I think it's, it's easier to conceptualize the idea that our identities, like, you know, I'm sure you've heard James Clear, mm-hmm. you know, the identity-based habit idea, right? right. You, you, we take habits based on our identity. And I'm sure many other habit, you know, thought leaders speak about this as well. I know you do as well in your book. I'm curious, as an adult, it makes sense, right? I take sure. actions with who I believe I am. If I wear a fancy suit and walk around, I'm going to take action. Like, if you ever dressed up, you start acting in maybe a little different way than if you're wearing your pajamas, right? Sure. It's like we take actions based on our outside universe is a representation of our inner, our inner universe. Yes. So it's interesting as a kid, though, you know, a lot of kids back to the childhood obesity crisis that's getting completely out of whack over the last mm-hmm. couple of decades. How do kids change their identities? Because it doesn't make sense to a kid, right? A kid doesn't think about their identity in that same way that an adult does. Yeah, true. And also their, their prefrontal cortex and that the part of their brain that houses thoughts, feelings, and behaviors isn't fully developed, right? So they're still developing well into their twenties. So you go about it in a different way. So it's instead of, you know, talking about identity and belief systems, they can still become the observer. They can still, you know, there are things you can do clinically. And and some of the programming that I wrote for Empowered Wellness that I founded after Wellspring and and ran for two summers, some of the clinical interventions we put in there was all about them being the observer and learning how to be aware of who they were being. Just this conscious metacognition. They can do metacognition, right? So they can, with enough practice and with the right kind of teaching, they can understand I am the thinker of my thought. Wow, that thought just went through my mind and be able to do a negative thought record or understand how often they say mean things to themselves or think mean things about others or have judgment. With the right type of prompting, they can learn to become the observer. And quite honestly, that's 70% of the battle for adults as well. You just use different language and different tools for for teenagers and, and children. Now, you were saying that you went when you were age 10 it's a whole different set of tools for for kiddos i would i would say really 10 to 12 maybe 13 um depending on whether they're male or female at that time just because of the the maturity level i would say you you use even a different set of skills but even my 8 year old we've been doing it since she was born about being aware and being the observer of the words that she says and how powerful they are. And when she tells herself she can't do something or, you know, with, with practice, she catches it on her own that she doesn't say she can't, or she doesn't, you know, speak to herself in a negative way because we've been working with her on how powerful those words are. So it's possible. It's just, we just do it in a different way. Yeah. First of all, I mean, I'm really inspired by that because I mean, if my, if if my 12 or 14 or even 18 year old knew that I was the observer, I mean, I didn't, I didn't discover meditation until I was probably like 26 or 27. 
actually maybe even 28. But so for me, like th- that whole idea of being having the awareness was yeah. also a really big important piece for my healing and to get off that diet hamster wheel that many people find themselves on right now. And I'm curious, back to kids, how do you, te- I mean, for an adult, we know there's certain things we can do, right? We, we talk to people, we have conversations, maybe we meditate, maybe we journal, a lot of different tools that we have to start to become aware. But as a kid, how do you think about you know, or how did you go about helping kids with this mindfulness of the of the awareness that they are the observer, they're not their thoughts and what their inner dialogue is, you know, what, what's the inner dialogue going on in their minds and how powerful that is, how powerful of a role that plays in their lives? Sure. One of the tools that we used was the negative thought record. And so, you know, and mind you, we would implement these in at Empowered Wellness was our clinical immersion summer camp program. And so the behavioral coaches are trained and the coaches are trained and everybody on the staff is trained to help cue them back to this type of behavior. But for instance, when they're using the negative thought record, you know, they would go throughout their day and they would be instructed to, it would be, you know, periods of time, maybe through the morning period or a couple of hours or something, be instructed to listen for when there was a negative thought that came up in their minds and given examples of a negative thought could be anything from, I really hate his t-shirt or my hair looks terrible when I look at myself in the mirror, or I hate my stomach when it, you know, is folding over my pants, right. And just get them to write those things down. And they, and all they would do is write it down or even sometimes make a check mark that they just had a thought. Love, love it's that. just a practice, right? It's just a practice. And you can see the light bulbs go off for them as they start to realize, whoa, I wasn't paying attention to that before. Now that I am, I realize how often that's happening. And then they start to go forward and think, how often do I do this? And in how many areas of my life do I do this? So all it is, is just cueing them back to awareness. So that was just one of the ways that we did it with a negative thought record for them at, at camp. That's amazing. I said before, I can't imagine a kid doing that, having that ability at such a young age is such a powerful, yeah, such a powerful thing. I used to struggle a lot with, I'm careful with my language around you. <laughs> <'Cause>, um, <laughs> Don't so, uh, be. <laughs> um, but there was a time in my life where I felt very judgmental. Mm-hmm. Once I had the awareness of being judgmental, I think it was at Burning Man one year when I was kind of looking around, I'm like, why is everyone wearing all these crazy costumes? Why can't people just dress normally? And we're in mm-hmm. Burning Man, of course, everyone's wearing crazy costumes. And mm-hmm. I'm the one who's like in my head, for whatever reason, I wasn't having a good time at the moment. I started judging everybody. Right. And I realized, um, one second, I'm looking around to everybody, judging everybody. I'm the common denominator right. in all those thoughts, right? I'm right. thinking about they, these people, they look like they're having a great time. They all can't be crazy. I mean, we're right. Burning Man, so everything's questionable. But <laughs> so, so I realized was I'm going to start tracking every time I catch myself. Yes thinking a thought like that. And what I started doing was I took a notepad out of my phone, I created a notepad and I started, I'm tracking with an emoji. So Mm -hmm. every time I caught myself, made an emoji, kind of gamify my mind. And I'm like, just the emoji, like Monday, emoji, emoji. And every day I'd pick a new emoji. So it was kind of like a fun thing to do. Yeah. And I trained my brain to start catching myself and having the awareness around when I was feeling really judgmental. Yep. It's really helped out a lot in my personal life. So it's amazing that kids, that you saw that with kids too. Is there a particular age that you would recommend a child, a parent start to try to get their child to start doing this this type of work? (laughs) Uh, My eight-year-old may may (laughs) disagree with me, but we've been doing it with her since she was, you know out of the womb and started talking, being aware of your language and being careful of your language. We don't say can't 
in our house and you'd be surprised at how often you need to catch yourself. And we say can't all the time, but she knows that instead of saying, I can't do that, she says, I need help with this. I'm still trying. I'm still learning. Can you help me with this? I'm having difficulty with this. I'm having trouble with this, which is a very different statement than I can't. Right. So to your question, I think there's never an age that's too early to start if you're really committed to this process. And truthfully, it is just a practice of becoming aware, like you said, and whether it's gamifying it with emojis or whether it's, you know, in our household, it becomes the, you know, what do we say, except instead of, I can't, that kind of thing. It just becomes part of her narrative. Her, her common language is, is to become aware when, when she's saying something that might be limiting. I remember when she was first learning how to ride her bike and she was, I don't know, four or five or something. And she remembers to this day, I said, what is the most important thing when learning how to ride your bike? And um, she said, mommy, I don't know. And I said, believing that you can, that is the most important thing is that you have to believe that you can do it. And she tells everybody that story is that it's most important that you believe it's most important that you believe. So anyways, I say that to say, we can start teaching kids. It's a culture shift. It's the way we think about raising our kids differently, be mindful of what we teach them, what we say, how we limit them, how they limit themselves. And, and so I encourage every parent to be willing to pay attention and have what we call metacognition at your own language. And then your children's language. I wish that we taught this in school. I wish that we taught people how to think, right. And to become the observer of their thoughts and become the observer of the belief systems and the identities that get formed very, very early on. You know, I think it's something like age seven is when the, really the alpha brain waves kind of move out, we move into more beta brain waves. And so all of these subconscious beliefs and identities that we have are really, really well formed by age seven. So early, we want to start teaching kids to become aware of their language, their thoughts, their belief system, and their identity. That's so interesting. You know, being that fat kid that was in Weight Watchers at 9, 10, maybe 11 years old, those were seemed like some of the fundamental moments where I realized that something was different about me. Yeah. And I think that's where I made that, made that equation in my mind. Yes. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, as this weight or obesity crisis continues to accelerate, what are some other things that parents can do to help their kids? Because I know there's a lot of, it's a tricky landscape to navigate. It's like, you don't want to tell, you know, a kid they can't have something, you know, you want to be supportive, but without feeling like you're putting too much restriction or making them wrong or labeling. How do you think about that? It's very tricky. It's, it's really complex. We could do a, you know, a whole few hour series on all (laughs) the complexities of, parenting a child, you know, who, who might be struggling with weight early on. It's everything from the medical field and way our medical professionals are trained to identity formation and belief systems and being careful about, you know, how we, how a kid identifies instead of saying you can't have that, or you shouldn't have that, or are you sure you want that second helping? It becomes language like, you know, what healthy balance looks like and the nutrient properties of food and creating balance in food that helps you have energy and helps your brain work really well versus foods that sometimes can make you feel sluggish. And while those foods are not bad foods, those are ones that have these outcomes versus these outcomes. But, you know, as a culture, we're not trained not only in appropriate nutrition, but also how to talk about that with our kids. So it's a very complex issue. And then on top of that, you add the fact that, you know, many, many of our foods are 
scientifically engineered, you know, to, to hit the dopamine properties in our brains and to that, you know, that, that affect our serotonin and, and our uh, hormonal development and all that kind of stuff. And you put all of that together and it becomes a very complex issue. It's not just, should the kid eat this or not eat this? There's, there's many pieces to it. So without getting into all of the pieces, I do think it's necessary to help our kids understand the impact of our modern food environment. Uh, And what I mean by that is they have a very difficult time regulating their processed food intake. So a a child very naturally um, knows when they're hungry and when they're full, right? They have hunger and fullness cues. A baby will stop eating when they're done. They'll only eat when they're hungry. It's all very natural and, and, and we don't need to mess with their hunger and fullness cues. However, as they continue to grow and develop, and if they're drinking juice or eating processed foods or eating a bunch of goldfish, those types of foods are designed to override their natural satiety and their hunger and fullness cues. So now they have a difficult time regulating that type of consumption because their body's natural cues to tell them when to stop are being muted, right? So they don't have access to that. So then now as a parent, now it's our job to help them understand how to regulate those types of foods. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I believe we need to help them understand balance from a food nutrition standpoint. And when I mean nutrition standpoint, I don't mean, you know, carbohydrates, are they good for you or bad for you? Is fat good for you and bad for you? I don't mean that kind of standpoint. I'm talking about does a bowl of sugary cereal help you have energy to play at recess or does eggs and some fruit and a piece of toast give you energy to help play at recess, that type of thing. And so it becomes conversations about, well, the reason why we're eating oatmeal this morning is because you know how your tummy starts to rumble at about nine o'clock when you get to school this will really help make you feel full longer, that type of, you know, nutrition discussion and helping them understand. And again, this metacognition, helping them make the connection between, oh, when I eat this, I have more energy, but when I eat this, I kind of feel, you know, sluggish or they'll have different words to describe it. You know, I feel kind of antsy or I feel jittery or I feel hungry in an hour or whatever. And I don't expect kids to put together all of their feelings and emotions and tie them back to what they ate that morning. You just start the awareness with them so that they get the message that food does have an impact on our mood and physically the way we feel throughout the day. Like I said, this is a very long, complex conversation, but the big takeaway is to talk about food from a, how it affects our body standpoint, not whether it's good or bad for you. This is literally the work I do is on myself as an adult. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's trying to, it's asking myself constantly, like, you know, instead of, is this food going to make me weigh less? I'm like, yes. is this, how is this going to make me feel this afternoon? I know if I have a really big breakfast, this interview, I may not have the same energy to, mm-hmm. to have this interview. You know, it's like, I think about that as I'm making my food choices. And I know this is an idea that you talk about as well in your book, which is, you know, connecting more to the feeling of the way food makes us feel yes. versus the actual, what the number on the scale that we think is going to give us the feeling that we desire. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the biggest concepts is that especially with our modern food environment, when, when food is not in its natural form anymore. And so it's messing with our brain chemistry, our biochemistry, you know, our emotions, serotonin, dopamine, all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's kind of messing with all of it. It becomes even more important for us to become, to have a different set of language. Like you just described, how is this going to make me feel not, is this going to make me lose weight? Because that's the identity of a dieter, right? Is this food good or bad for me? Is that going to make me lose weight or gain weight? We want to dismantle that identity. And we want to start asking, am I making this food decision? Because it is the person that I'm becoming, this is who I want to be. I want to be this person with energy and I want to be this person who feels confident in my choices. And I want to be this person who feels empowered. Does this decision make me feel like that type of person or that type of person? And once we start to create a new identity of who we want to be, then we can ask the questions of, well, what would that person eat and how would that person move? And, you know, would that person judge somebody or not judge somebody? And we start to think, act, and behave from a new identity rather than think and act and behave from the old identity of a dieter or someone who needs to lose weight. And very, very different decisions get made just by changing our identity and belief system and the thought processes that we have. So if I was, you know, over 330 pounds listening to this interview, the thing that I would be thinking about right now, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, yeah. the thing that I would be thinking about right now is okay, this sounds really good. Like mm-hmm. if I can just, you know, eat for the way I want to feel, like this sounds great. And I don't feel safe doing that. I need For me to feel safe and to know that I'm not going to continue gaining weight and eating out of control, I need to be on some rigid program, rigid diet. This is me, you know, 10 years ago. This, is, this would have been my thoughts, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't feel safe listening to now, you know, 10 years later, yes, this is what I do. But 10 years ago, no. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, I'd be like, no, we've been on diets. That's the only time we lose weight is when we're on a diet. Like we sure. don't, and the idea of like giving myself permission to feel into it, I'd feel cookies and cake all day long. Sure. You think you would. So a couple of things. The mistake that we make is that we believe that the diet is what's making us safe. In reality, what you're doing is when you don't feel safe and you choose a diet to create safety, what you're actually end up doing is creating more of a lack of safety because if you think about it, the more you tell yourself you're relying on the diet to feel safe, the more unsafe you actually feel, because what if something happens to that diet, right? So it's just like somebody in a relationship, if it's sort of the like, you know, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. And you put all of your safety into that person. It actually underneath energetically makes you feel even less safe because if something heaven forbid were to happen to that person, then, oh my gosh, your world falls apart. Right? So the work actually is on creating the safety first is on recognizing how often you tell yourself you're unsafe, how often you tell yourself you don't trust yourself around food, how often you wake up and say, see, I just did it again. And I, you know, binged last night and I'm always going to do this becoming metacognitive of who you're being, what you're saying, the energy you have, the vibration that you hold day in and day out to examine that lack of safety. I mean, this again is a, is a whole process that, 
takes more than just what I'm saying here right now. But but if I'm if I'm oversimplifying it, you have to create that safety first. And then when you create the safety first, or even just get on the path to safety, what you do is you dismantle that energetic almost trauma bond with the diet and say, wait a second, I see you for what you were. You weren't actually keeping me safe. You were keeping me stuck. What would I do if I was a person who was safe? And you start tiptoeing into who would I be if I was already safe? Who? What would I do if I already felt safety? What would I have in my house if I wasn't afraid I was going to overeat it? Now, mind you, again, it's a it's a process and there are a few steps to it, but it's the paradox of safety. So if you're, you know, if you, like you said, you're over 300 pounds and you're looking at what diet can I use to help me lose this weight? If you really step back and dismantle your identity and belief system, what you realize is that your attachment to the diet is just perpetuating the identity of the dieter and you stay on that hamster wheel and it keeps you stuck. The idea sounds like to oversimplify is, you know, the concept of be, do, have, or have, do, be. Precisely. And it's like on a diet, you, you know, you, it's have, do, be. I have to be on a diet to be a certain yeah. way, to have the life I want to have. And what you're saying Correct. is flip the script. First, start feeling safe today yes. and know that everything's okay in the size body that you're in. Yes. And if you overeat, it's totally okay. And mm-hmm. let's work on baby steps to just get you aware mm-hmm. of what's happening. And okay. I think the insecurity can come often from the idea and the notion of the thoughts that without being a certain weight, our lives aren't okay. Correct. Yes. And so I think the remedy, well, I, I guess I'm oversimpl- oversimplifying this as well, but <laughs> one of the ideas to think about for somebody listening who's like, hey, this sounds interesting, but what do I even do? Yeah. Is to realize it's a long game and to just be patient because with patience, you have more runway, right? Yeah. You do. And what I will say is you're right. It is a long game. One of the things I teach in the systematic sort of dismantling of it is that, well, you would know this when you say to someone who's let's say over 300 pounds, it's a long game. Their immediate reaction is going to be, I roll, forget it. Give me the, I want the short game. I don't have time for that. I'm not, I'm not in this for the long game. You're right. It is a long game. However, for instance, we're in week nine of the shift program, which is my small group program. And one of the gals who's been, who's been doing everything for these nine, in nine weeks has what she claims is I am, I am a different person. I am a different person than I was when I started this. I am not the same person that I was before. I feel different. I act different. I behave different. And while I'm not exactly where I want to be yet, I feel like a different person. And so while, yes, is it a long game, but you can feel different along the way pretty quickly if you are willing to implement the changes and implement some of these processes that can can quite literally change the experience of your life. I'm not going to use the word immediately, but really, really quickly. I completely agree. I experienced that, you know, when I was doing group coaching as well, I experienced something very similar that somebody after a couple of weeks felt immediately different because once yeah. they believed that the reality may be different because of the internal work they started to do. And then they started to realize how good it felt to like be doing that work and leaning into that possibility. All of a sudden, everything around them started to shift and they started to have a whole new lease on, on their vision, on their life. Yep. And so while they could probably reflect back and who knows, maybe they, I'm making things up, but maybe they still wanted to lose a hundred pounds or something, but they still have that 
you know, hope or um, goal or, or vision in mind. Sure. The experience that they're having of their life right now yeah. feels so drastically different that while the goal is still there and that's fine, who they are being and the life they are living changes right away. And that is so powerful once the, exactly what you said, once they've kind of flipped the script on their belief and identity. That is pure genius. That <laughs> idea that everyone, it's like the long game is not a long game. It's actually the wrong language. Like it's the long game is the short game is to actually, right. the long game is to have, to start feeling great right now just by doing some of this work. And I think the way you outline your approach in your book, Brain Powered Weight Loss is really simple. And helping people realize the steps they need to take to start to envision this possible future, to start to envision, you know, the, the choices they're making today, how that impacts their day to day, as opposed to pushing life off until they reached their goal, pushing right. all the things they wanted you off until they're at a different weight. And I think that's that's really profound. And I think that's also a, a good place for us to wrap this up. There's a question that I would like to wrap up with, which is a question for your personal life. But what is one area of your life where you are feeling full in right now? Mm. If I'm really honest, I'm feeling so full and alive in my business right now after years and years and, and two decades of, of doing work in a certain way. I am confident that I'm finally doing the work I'm supposed to be doing with the people I'm supposed to be doing it with and exactly the way that I'm supposed to be doing it. And it feels I'm aware of how full and fulfilled I am in that area of my life. So I've been doing a lot of work on gratitude in that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it really comes through in your work. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you because of the passion that I felt from everything mm -hmm. I found out about you, every every interview I, I saw you in. And just like, you can tell this is like, this is the blood that's pumping in your veins. It and is. It's, it's yeah. clear. It's clear. Thank you. It is. Yeah. People listening right now that want to find out more about you, get more involved in your work, uh, are curious, what are some of the ways they can do that? Sure. ElizaKingsford.com. It's my website. I have a free Facebook group that I go live in every Monday answering questions. Eliza Kingsford on Instagram. I go live there on Tuesdays answering questions um, and all the information about, you know, programs and groups and courses and things are on my website, elizakingsford.com. So pretty easy to find me that way. Awesome. Awesome. I'll make sure to link all that in the show notes for anybody listening. And Thank you. this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. It's great. Can't wait to share it. Have an awesome day. Thank you. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they can use some support, feel free to share this episode with them. And if you have a moment to rate and review, that really helps grow the show. Take care, be well, and feel full.